Welcome to Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association's podcast. In Mark 16, 15, Jesus says, Go throughout the whole world and preach the gospel to every person. This Bible teaching was given in the tabernacle in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. Visit OceanGrove.org to learn how we are fulfilling our mission to provide people of all ages with opportunities for spiritual birth, growth, and renewal through worship, educational, cultural, and recreational programs at the Jersey Shore. It is my privilege this morning to reintroduce to you Chad Bird. He knows the Old Testament like no one I've ever known. Uh, He served as a pastor, a professor, a guest lecturer in the Old Testament and Hebrew. He holds master's degrees from Concordia Theological Seminary and Hebrew Union College. He has contributed articles to Christianity Today, the Gospel Coalition, the Modern Reformation, the Federalist, the Lutheran Forum, and other journals and websites. Doesn't sound like he's missed too much. He has books for sale. Uh, We're out of some of them. Uh, I think you're going to talk about the books, right? You don't want me to do that. And uh, he is, we are glad to have him back with us, and I don't want to take any more of his time. Good morning, everyone. I think I talked about all these yesterday, but just uh, in case you missed it, not driving is, I guess you might call it my spiritual autobiography. It's a story of how a Hebrew professor became a truck driver, became somebody who travels to Ocean Grove, New Jersey, and talks to you about Jesus. <laughs> Unveiling Mercy is uh, a daily devotional based on Hebrew words in which I connect the Hebrew words to the New Testament and the saving work of Christ. You've been hearing quite a bit about that this week. Upside Down Spirituality, if you want to learn how to be a blessed failure at life, this is the book for you. So kind of taking the Beatitudes and applying them to various aspects of our lives as individuals and families and churches. And then we're out of the Christ Key, but uh, the bookstore will be getting more of these in the near future. And if you uh, can't wait until they get them, then you can always order those from Amazon or directly from 1517.org. Okay, so we, uh, we've talked uh, about a lot this week, various aspects of Christ in the Old Testament. We've talked about how he was prefigured by various people in the Old Testament, like our good friend Melchizedek. We've talked about how the uh, various elements of creation point forward to the new creation. We've talked about all sorts of ways in which Christ was speaking of himself to us in the pages of the Old Testament. We're going to focus today on something that we've touched on but really haven't elaborated, and that is what the tabernacle and creation and the temple and Zion, how all of these together preach Christ to us in a way that perhaps we haven't considered before. And to kind of get us to thinking about that, I want to talk to you a little bit about my dad. My dad's name is Carson, Carson Bird. My dad, you would know right away, my dad is a lover of horses. If you you were to walk into my parents' house in the little town of Shamrock, Texas, about 10 miles out in the country, actually, away from Shamrock, if you were to walk in their house and then it's just an old country farmhouse, what you you might expect to find in a in a small acre of land in the Texas panhandle. You walk through the front door, you take a left, you go through the kitchen, you go back to the den. 
Now, back when my dad built the den, they didn't call it a man cave. But that's what it is. That's what we would call it today. When you walk into the den, you're going to see over to your right almost every edition of the American Quarter Horse Association Journal, beginning already back in the early days. If you go a little bit further down the bookshelf, you're going to find the, the stud registers of the quarter horses dating way back, because what my dad used to do is he would take a horse and he would fill out the pedigree for that horse. And to, and to do that, of course, you need to know who the, the sire and the mare are. And so he would trace basically the genealogy of these horses and, and put it all in this pedigree sheet. On the other wall, you'll find all sorts of tack. You'll find bridles. You'll find saddles. You'll find spurs. You'll find shaps. You'll find all sorts of things which communicate to you upon stepping into the den that the guy who spends most of his days in this room is a cowboy. He loves horses. You'll also find one other element about my dad. If you look over at the fireplace, and he built this all, by the way, himself. He built the den, he built the fireplace, he built it all himself. So if you go over by the fireplace and you look down to the right of the fireplace, you'll see an old branding iron. It wasn't made by welding, it was made by a blacksmith. And if you hold it up, you'll see that the brand is Ed, E-D. That's short for Edward Walker Bird, who was my dad's great-grandfather. So it was forged way back when the birds lived in, in Waco, Texas. So if you don't know anything about my dad at all, but you walk into his house, and you especially walk into his den immediately, based upon the things that you see, based upon the layout, based upon the details, you already know a significant amount about my dad. Because our spaces, our homes, those places in which we live, those places in which we work, tell you a good deal about what we consider is important. They reveal a little bit of our biography without saying a word. We can catch a glimpse into really what makes a person tick, what's important to them, what their passions are, what they like to talk about, what is significant to them based upon their home, based upon this space within their home that is very special and very revelatory concerning who they are. It's very similar with God. If we could go back in the Old Testament and visit either the temple or earlier the tabernacle, we would learn a significant amount concerning who God is, simply based upon what the tabernacle teaches us. Now, this space is called a tabernacle, right? Yeah, this is, this is the first time I've talked about the tabernacle in a tabernacle. <laughs> Let me just kind of revel in that for a moment, talking about the tabernacle and the tabernacle. And yet, if, if we were at the Old Testament tabernacle, it's, it's like this in that it is a structure, and yet it's very unlike this particular tabernacle in a, in a whole, lot of other, whole lot of other ways. For one, I'm assuming you never moved this structure. Is that a safe assumption? Yeah, like if you get tired of it being here, you don't move it closer to the beach. It stays here. All right. Unlike the tabernacle, right? Tabernacle is basically a fancy word for what? A tent. Yeah. 
So how many of you live in tabernacles? I know some of you stay in tabernacles because I've seen them all around over there. Yeah. So you're staying in tent. I'll teach you. A Hebrew, this is the Hebrew word of the day. The Hebrew word of the day for tent is ohel. That's it. It's ohel. That's, that's the word for tent. So you stay in an ohel. If you stay in a tent, that's a word for tent or tabernacle. So the, uh, the ohel moed was a tent of meeting the place where the Israelites would gather around God's presence. The one difference. Another difference, of course, is that we can all come inside this tabernacle, right? But the Old Testament tabernacle, if you wanted to come inside into just kind of the first part of it, you had to be a priest. And if you wanted to go into like the inner part of the tabernacle, you could, could only do that if you were the high priest. So access was different also. The tabernacle was a tent you moved. Not everyone could go inside it. Certainly not everyone could go inside the inner sanctum. And of course, there's many other differences as well, but we kind of borrow that particular terminology of tabernacle to talk about our worship spaces, and, and understandably, understandably so. Now, what I want to do is I want to actually take us past the temple, which was built by Solomon. I want to take us past the temple, back to the tabernacle, which was built where? In, in the desert, at the foot of Mount Sinai, after the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt. So he had, God had to get his people out of the unclean Egypt, out of the land of idolatry, and then and only then could he bring them into this place where a holy sanctuary could be built. Because you're not going to build a holy sanctuary in Egypt. You've got to get out of Egypt before the sanctuary is built. But I want to take us even beyond that. What I want to do is take us all the way back to creation. See, one of the things I want to impress upon you today, and perhaps the thing that I want to impress upon you today, is that when you read Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account, kind of the big creation account in Genesis 1, and then Genesis 2 talks a lot more about Adam and Eve and Eden and the Garden of Eden, so when you're reading Genesis 1 and 2, what you're reading is an account that has numerous affinities, parallels with the tabernacle and the temple. One of the things that I want, what, what I want you, one of the things I want you to think about is how creation is like the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is like creation, and together this this tabernacle creation and this creational tabernacle together they point toward the one who brings them both to fulfillment in himself he who brings about a new creation for us a regenesis and he who is the word made flesh who did what tabernacled among us and who says in the very next chapter of John destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And the temple he was talking about was the temple of his body. So we're going to go from Genesis 1 and 2 to Exodus 34 through 40 to John 1 and 2 and lots of other stuff in between. That's where we're going. Now let's rewind all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. And I want you, I want you to think about this creation account from the perspective of the tabernacle. And we're going to kind of be going back and forth here. We're going to, we're going to be thinking about Genesis 1 and 2 but we're also going to be thinking about Exodus 34 through 40. So Genesis 1 and 2 you're familiar with. Exodus 34 through 40 is, the, and to some people, 
boringly detailed how, on how to build the tabernacle, okay? And what we're going to see is that structurally, these two accounts are strikingly similar. Let's go through a few of the, the, few of the parallels. Number one, some of the language. So if you're reading through Genesis 1, one of the words that you're going to encounter in Hebrew is the verb badal. Badal means to separate. Remember some of the things that God separated in Genesis 1? He separated the waters, the waters above from the waters below. He put the lights in the heavens to separate day from night. Badal occurs over and over and over in Genesis 1. It's one of the characteristic verbs of Genesis 1. God likes to separate. He likes to put divisions. He likes to have everything in its proper place. He likes to say, you belong there, you belong there, and I'm, I'm going to badal you. I'm going to separate you so that each thing has its place. Fast forward to Exodus 34 through 40, along with a lot of other places that talk about the tabernacle and later the temple. And one of the words that you're going to encounter over and over is badal. Separate. Divide. God likes to separate. He likes everything in its place in his tabernacle. So he puts between the Holy of Holies and the holy place a curtain. And the purpose of that curtain is to badal. It's to separate the holy place from the Holy of Holies. There's all sorts of divisions and separations in the tabernacle, just like in creation. Another parallel between the creation account and Exodus 34 through 40, the tabernacle account, is how many times we encounter elements of seven. Genesis 1.1 in Hebrew is Bereshit bara Elohim et HaShemayim ve'et Haaretz. Bereshit Bara Elohim et Hashemayim ve'et Haaretz. The opening verse of the Bible is seven words in Hebrew. How many days in creation are there? Seven. What is the final day? The Sabbath. Okay. Seven words begin the opening verse. Seven days culminating in the Sabbath. You skip forward to Exodus 34. And you begin seven different speeches by which God instructs Moses on how he is to build the tabernacle. And any guesses as to what possibly might be the content of the last speech regarding the construction of the tabernacle? The Sabbath. Seven speeches, the last one's about the Sabbath. And you go to Exodus chapter 40, which is the last chapter in the book of Exodus. And over and over, we encounter this phrase, Ka'asher tziva Yahweh, just as the Lord commanded. Any guesses to how many times in Exodus 40 it says, just as the Lord commanded? Seven times. Seven times, seven speeches, finishes on the Sabbath, and I won't even take the time to talk about all the parallels and language between Genesis 1 and 2 and then Exodus 34 through 40. Now, cumulatively, all of this is communicating what message? The message is this. When you're reading Genesis 1 and then shifting to Genesis 2, you're reading the account of the creation, first of all, of a cosmic temple. 
The world is the place where God will dwell, just like he dwells in the temple, right? You with me so far? But there's a, there's a different focus. If you go to Genesis 2, all of a sudden there's this narrowing from the heavens and the earth to where? Eden. Eden. And then there's a narrowing even more because Eden is a, a space, a bigger area, and what's within Eden? The garden. So Genesis 2 focuses in on the garden. Now in the ancient Near East, if you were to investigate other religions, you'll discover that the gods like to live in gardens. Now when you read in the Bible, God also likes to dwell in a garden. The true God likes to dwell in a garden. He's there in the garden with Adam and Eve. He's used to walking, right? That's where he's looking for them in Genesis chapter 3. He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Kind of like today, as cool as it is in the room this morning, right? I can see you all shivering as you sit there. We have blankets in the back for anyone who gets a little bit, a little bit, a little bit cold. So he walks in the garden in the cool of the day with his people. And Adam and Eve, now this is fascinating. Adam and Eve are given, are placed in the Garden of Eden to do two things. Anyone remember that little phrase? God says you are to do this and to do that. Care for the garden and attend it, work it. Yeah, your translation is going to vary there as to how, it, how, it's, how it's translated. In Hebrew, there's two verbs that are used. They are to avad. That means to serve or work. Okay? They're to work or serve the garden. And they are to shamar. If you shamar something, you guard it. You watch it. You keep it. You protect it. So if you're a shomer, you're a guard. Now, it just so happens... That avad and shamar, to serve and to keep, or to serve and to guard, those two particular verbs are the exact same two verbs that are used over and over and over to describe the duties of the priest in the temple. They serve at the temple. They avad at the temple. And they shamar, they guard, they watch, they keep the temple. Why do they guard it? What's the risk? What do you not want coming into the temple or the tabernacle area? Evil? Anything unclean? Anything that doesn't belong there, right? So Adam and Eve are placed within the Garden of Eden as priests. So we, we might sometimes call the later priests like the, the Adams and the Eves. Just like we can think of Adam and Eve as the first priests. Okay, everybody with me? You kind of getting the, the feel for this? So Genesis 1 and 2 is, is like the creation of this cosmic temple, but then Genesis 2 is a creation of this, this holy place within creation. And what's God going to do there? He's going to dwell with his people. He's going to walk with them. He's going to have the kind of relationship that he desires to have with humanity. And then that's all messed up, right? We get to Genesis 3. All of that is leading to a broken world. So what's God going to do? He's going to eventually create access for humanity into a new tabernacle, into a new holy space. 
which is exactly what we have in the creation of the tabernacle. You see, yesterday we talked about how Adam and Eve were exiled from Eden, right? Now, nobody called me on this, and I'm kind of disappointed in all of you, to be honest. No, I'm just kidding. Nobody said, maybe you were thinking it, but nobody, nobody explicitly said, how did Adam and Eve, or how did humanity get back into Eden? Did that cross your mind yesterday? Because we talked about how they ended up in Egypt, and they were brought forth, right? They were exiled, they came back. They were in Egypt, they came back home. The Israelites in 586 B.C. were exiled to Babylon, and then they came back home. Jacob was exiled to Haran, and then he came back home. Abraham and Sarah were exiled to Egypt. They came back home. Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, and did they come back home? No, no. So there's like this gap that's waiting to be filled. When is humanity going to be brought back from exile into the garden. Exodus chapter 34 through 40. That's when they are. You see, here's what God does in creating the tabernacle. God is saying to his people, I want to dwell among you. I don't want to be separated from you. God, God is not the kind of God who likes to dwell in some far off remote mountaintop away from his people. God doesn't want to be this kind of distant deity, way removed from humanity. Where does God want to dwell? Among us. We've talked about this multiple times. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us, not God apart from us, not God separated from us. He's the kind of God who likes to get into the nitty-gritty of our lives. So much so that when the tabernacle is constructed and the Israelites are moving around and camping here and there, where is the tabernacle? In the middle, smack dab in the middle of his people. That's where God wants to dwell. He doesn't want to be, you know, two or three miles away from those sinners, the Israelites. He wants to dwell right in the middle of his people. Now, for the Israelites, what do they have in the tabernacle? Well, they've got God dwelling in their midst, which is a pretty big thing. He's in the Holy of Holies. And when they come to the tabernacle, or later when they came to the temple... This is their opportunity to come into the very presence of the God who dwelt in the Garden of Eden and to be welcomed by him. Welcomed in what sort of way? Through cleansing, through sacrifice, through atonement. You see, God doesn't want to keep his people at a distance. He does everything necessary to make sure that he's dwelling in their midst and that they have a way to come to him. He doesn't say... I'm going to be out in the desert somewhere, and I want you guys to find me. God doesn't play hide and seek. God gives us his address. Every Israelite knew the zip code of Yahweh. If you were to ask an Israelite, where's God? He's right over there in that tent. That's where he has located himself for us. Does he feel the heavens and the earth? Sure, yeah. Yeah, he fills the heavens and the earth. But notice this about God. He is omnipresent, right? He's everywhere. So is God, anyone have a cup of coffee? Anyone have a cup of coffee, a cup of water? Yeah, you do. Is God in your coffee? Sure he is, yeah. If you take a deep breath, 
Is God in the air you just breathe in? Sure. Is God in the pages of this Bible, or is he in this uh, iPhone? Maybe not the iPhone. I don't know if God would actually stoop so low as to do that. But He's in this microphone. Of course, he's everywhere, right? Okay, but if you take a drink of, cup, if you tr- take a drink of coffee, would it be accurate to say you're drinking God? No, no. I mean, if I take a deep breath, I'm not going to pretend like I'm inhaling God in some sort of mystical experience. No. However, notice what God does. And this is the cool thing about the way that God operates. He always chooses certain things in certain places, and he says, you know what, sinner, that I love? When you want to consume me, when you want to take me in, when you want to touch me, when you want to take me into who you are, that's where you go. That's where you go. So if you're an Old Testament Israelite and you want to go visit God, you want to come face to face to him, you want to take into yourself that which God himself is, then you go to where he has placed himself. You go to the sacrifices. You go to the altar. You go to these meals that God himself has prepared for his people. That's where you go. And you know it's no different today. When you want to hear God speak, where do you put your ear? Scriptures. Anytime you want to hear God talk, it's real simple. You open up your Bible and read. It's it's so simple, it's amazing. But if you want to hear God talk to you, if you want want to be so close to God that you can hear his voice, well, here it is, right here. It's in his word. If you want to, if you want to, Go to the place that God has promised to be for you. You go to the Lord's Supper. Where he's given you his bread and wine upon the altar. If you want to, if you want to know where God has placed himself, you go to those specific places where God has said, this is where I am. That's what he did in the Old Testament in the tabernacle, and that's what he still does in the church today. Now, I'm kind of getting far afield, so let me bring us back here. I want us to think more about what it means for creation and the tabernacle to be one and the same so god makes creation everything falls apart god makes the tabernacle he places this tabernacle in the midst of his people so that they will have a chance to come into his presence because humanity has the ongoing problem of being unclean so let me let me unpack that a little bit because I think that's sort of a foreign, foreign concept to, to most of us today. This is, this is the example that I like to use. Because when you hear unclean, I don't want you to think dirty. Dirty and unclean are two different things. Something can be spick and span and be unclean. And something can be very dirty and be completely clean from a biblical perspective. Okay, so you hear all, you read through Leviticus, or you read through various parts of the Old Testament, you hear a lot about something being unclean. So when a woman's on her period, she's unclean. When a person has some sort of skin disease, they're unclean. If a loved one dies and you prepare the body for burial, and of course you necessarily touch the body of your loved one, you are ritually unclean. And if you're ritually unclean, what can you not do? You can't go into the temple. You can't go into the tabernacle. You can't celebrate certain 
festivals of the Israelite, of the Israelite calendar. So what do you need? If you're unclean, what do you need? Yeah, you need a bath of some sort, right? You need to be cleansed. Well, for the Israelites, that was the ongoing problem for them. They were always, in one way or another, falling into a state of uncleanness. And uncleanness is not the same thing as sin, right? It's not a sin for a woman to be on her period. It's not a sin to touch a dead body. It just happens to be the way that life in a broken world works. We're always encountering various elements of creation, which are emblematic of the fact that our world is messed up. And so what does God do? He says, you're always going to be in a state of uncleanness in one way or another, so I'm going to provide a way for you to be cleansed. And not just cleansed, but made holy. Not just cleansed, but made holy. Set aside, sanctified. Here's the way that God works. I'll, I'll, I'll describe it in the Old Testament, and then I'll connect it to the, to the way he still works among us. So if you're an unclean Israelite, God's like, I don't want you to stay that way. So I'm going to give you a cleansing method whereby you can rid the uncleanness from you. And usually it's in the form of water. You're, you're, you wash your, your body, you wash your clothes, and, and now, you're, now you're clean. But it ain't over yet. God's not happy that you're just clean. He wants you to be holy. Now, I got, I got to add a, a little bit of a, of a correction here. Usually today... And it's been like this for a long time. When we hear holy, we tend to associate it with kind of morality, right? If I say, <clears throat> I am a holy person, what's the immediate connection you make? Yeah, I'm religious in some way, yeah. And, and if I say to another person, I am a holy person, usually what am I, what am I implying? You're not. I'm a holy person, unlike uh, some other people, right? That's the reason we have the holier-than-thou uh, insult. So here's the correction. Holy, in the biblical perspective, doesn't really have to do with us. It doesn't have to do with the good behavior that I might be exemplifying. If I'm holy, you know why I'm holy? Because God's made me that way. You see, you can't achieve holiness. You can't work yourself toward holiness. Holiness is a gift. Now, the way this works in the Old Testament is God cleanses people, and then he brings them into his holy presence. That's why we call it the Holy of Holies. That's where the holy, holy, holy God has located himself. So the closer you come to God in the Old Testament, guess what? The holier you become. The closer you come to God, I'm talking about spatially, architecturally. So if you're walking in, walking toward the tabernacle, and, and say you're a priest, you can come into the holy, holy place. And say you're the high priest, you're walking into the holy of holies on the day of atonement. With each step, you're getting closer to the, the holiness of God, and therefore this holiness of God is affecting who you are. And it has nothing to do with you. It's all God's gift. See, God wants to make you holy. He wants to sanctify you. And the way he does that is not by giving you a list of 10 or 20 steps whereby you can make yourself holy, you can achieve holiness. The way he does it is by saying, come to me. 
Come to me. I am the holiness of God. Now, in the Old Testament, they came to God in the tabernacle. And the way that he made them holy was by giving them holy things. For instance, you had one of the sacrifices that was called the peace offering. The shalomim, it's from shalom in Hebrew. Now, say that my wife and I, along with our family, we made the trip down from, uh, say, Galilee to the temple. And while we were there in Jerusalem, we wanted to offer a sacrifice. So we would bring a lamb. And we would offer this lamb as a shalomim, as a shalom offering. Now, here's the amazing thing about the shalom offering. The lamb would be sacrificed. Its blood would be applied to the altar. Its body would be prepared. Part of the animal would go to the priest. And the rest of the animal would come back to us. The blood of that animal which was offered for us touches the holy altar of God. And then the body of that animal is given to us. And you know what we do with it? We have a barbecue. We're going to have a feast. We're going to cook this animal, and as a family, we're going to receive this animal that was sacrificed for us. And by doing that, we're receiving the holy gift of God, and we are thereby sanctified. We're made holy because we've received something from the very altar of God, and now we have ingested the one who provided atonement for us. How cool is that? To take into your very body the one who was sacrificed on the altar for you. And this is the way that God sanctifies. This is the way he makes holy. So throughout the Old Testament, here's what God is doing. God is taking unclean people and he's saying, I want to cleanse you. Here's the way I cleanse you. But I'm not happy just cleansing you. I want to make you holy. So here's how I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to draw you into my holy presence. And there I'm going to give you holy gifts so that you become holy people. It's God's gift to you. Now, jump forward to the New Testament. Notice what happens when people encounter Jesus. Think of that poor woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years. Remember her? What happened to all her money? Gone where? Yeah, doctors. It's like, it's like the Bible's doctor joke. If you want to make fun of doctors. Yeah, remember that woman? She spent all she had on, my, on the doctors. And did she get any better? No. Her medical bills just went through the roof. But she knew, she knew that if she could come up to Jesus and touch where? Just the hem of his garment. And she did. And Jesus felt power come forth from him. And all of a sudden, she who was unclean was cleansed. And she wasn't just cleansed, but at that moment, she received the sanctifying mercy of Jesus, and she was made holy. That's the way that God works. He establishes his tabernacle as the place in a broken and fallen creation where sinners can come and be cleansed and sanctified. And all of this... Every, every narrative about the tabernacle, the construction of the temple in 1 Kings, all of this is saying to us, look, you're seeing Jesus. He appears as a tabernacle. He appears as a temple. And all the elements that are part of that. And this is, this is the Old Testament's way of saying, 
you ain't seen nothing yet. You just wait. You just wait for the Word who now dwells in the Holy of Holies to become flesh and dwell among us. The Word to become flesh and tabernacle among us so that His body is our temple. You know what that means for us? That means that when we're dealing with the uncleanness of shame, anybody ever felt that? Uncleanness of shame? Like you're unworthy to go into the presence of God because of what you've done or what somebody else has done to you. It's not the same as guilt. Guilt is that feel we have for what we've done. Shame is that feeling we have over who we are. God says, come to me and I'll cleanse you of that and I'll fill you with my holiness. When we feel regret, when we feel disappointment, when we feel guilt, when we feel like there's just no way that we can continue on, Jesus says, come unto me, and I will cleanse you, and I will sanctify you. Because that's the kind of God we have in Jesus Christ, who is our tabernacle, who is our temple. Now, it isn't just, it isn't just that the tabernacle and the temple as a totality pointed forward to the work of Christ. Think of all the various elements in the tabernacle and the temple that did the same. Just kind of go through them in our heads as we, as we wrap up these last few minutes. Imagine you're walking up to the tabernacle. What's the first thing that you encounter? What's the first article of sacred furniture? The altar. The altar. I think I mentioned this two or three days ago. The altar is the, is the axis of heaven and earth. It's where God and humanity come together. The altar is the place of sacrifice. So you can have an altar without a tabernacle, but you can't have a tabernacle without an altar. The altar is indispensable because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. God doesn't just say from heaven, you're forgiven. He says you're forgiven in the blood of Jesus. That's where you're forgiven. You've got to have an altar. And what does the altar point forward to? The cross of Jesus. That was the Roman altar. There was the sacrifice appointed. On that Roman altar hung the one that all the sacrifices of the Old Testament were pointing toward. You go a little bit further. And before you get into the tabernacle, what are you going to, what are you going to encounter? There's a place where you wash your hands and you wash your feet if you're the priest. It was later called the bronze laver. It was a, it was a, a wash basin. You can't go into the presence of God without being cleansed. And so you wash your hands and you wash your feet, and then you enter into the presence of God. Just like all of us, we're baptized. We're washed, and we enter, therefore, into the presence of God. Now you step into the holy space, the holy, the holy place, and what do you see? There's three things in there. You get the table of showbread. So if you were a priest... You ate this, literally it's bread of the face, lechem panim in Hebrew. Bread of the face because it was bread in the very face of God. And so this bread, like a sponge, absorbed the sanctifying presence of God, and the priests consumed this, and this is the way that they consumed the holiness of God every Sabbath. Across from that, you had the menorah. The menorah is like the continuation of the tree of life. Because it was shaped like a tree. You had, your, you had your, your main part of the tree and then you had the branches. And its fruit was light. So most scholars think that the, 
The menorah was the perpetuation of the tree of life that we find in the Garden of Eden. Now, you, you, you have your table of showbread, you have your, your lampstand, you go right in front of the curtain that hangs between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Space, and you have the altar of incense, which is where the high priest or the other priest would offer up prayers for the people. The same prayers that Hebrews talks about Jesus offered up with loud cries and tears to his Father. What's the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies? What does the book of Hebrews say about that veil? Anyone remember? The flesh of Christ. How could the veil be the flesh of Christ? What is the, what is the purpose of that curtain or veil in the Old Testament? It separates. It's a division. Here you go and no further. Well, if the veil points forward to the flesh of Christ, all of a sudden we have a radical transformation because no longer is it a, a barrier. Now it's a portal. The way into the Holy of Holies, the way into the direct presence of God is only through the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. His flesh is the veil, a veil that is not a barrier, but a doorway. The body of Jesus Christ is a way in which we enter into the very presence of God. It's no longer, no longer a wall. It's an open doorway for us to enter into the very face of the Father. You step into the Holy of Holies, and what do you find there? You find the Ark of the Covenant, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the, the mercy seat. Now. Not all your English translations will, will bring this out, but there's a beautiful verse in Romans chapter 3, verse 25 that says that Jesus has been put forth as our, in Greek it's hilasterion. Hilasterion is the Greek version of the mercy seat or the atonement cover in the Old Testament. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that Jesus has been put forth as our mercy seat as our place of atonement. Now, in the Old Testament, could you see the mercy seat? No, it was inside the tabernacle, which was inside the, the Holy of Holies, behind the barrier. You couldn't see it. Only the high priest saw it once a year on the Day of Atonement. Jesus is our atonement cover. He is our mercy seat who is displayed publicly before all the world so that when you see the cross of Jesus, you can point to that cross and say, there's a place of atonement. There's a place of mercy. There's a place where all my sins and the sins of the entire world were laid upon the Lamb of God so that in Him we might be reconciled to the Father. The cross of Jesus is the public cosmic display of the mercy seat because here is God. God sacrificed for us. God shedding His blood for us so that in Him we might have atonement in him we might be welcomed by the Father. Now let's wrap this up by thinking forward. Forward to the last couple chapters of Revelation. Revelation 21 and 22. Remember some of the images that are used there to describe what it's going to be like when Christ returns again to establish the new heavens and the new earth? Remember what Revelation 21 and 22 says about the temple? It says, there is no temple because... God is the temple. God and the Lamb are the temple. 
So the, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, which was a place of new creation, leads to the temple, leads to the body of Christ. All of this is flowing toward Revelation in 20, 21 and 22, where in the new creation, our temple is God. Our temple is God and his lamb. And then one other really cool thing about Revelation 21 and 22. Remember what flows from the throne of God and of the lamb? A stream. Now, I got to tell you this about John. John is guilty of a sort of a, a holy plagiarism. Don't tell anybody I said that. But John is guilty of a kind of a holy plagiarism, a spirit, a, a spirit given plagiarism. That is to say, John is constantly borrowing from the Old Testament. He's always dipping his, his pen into the ink of Ezekiel or dipping his pen into the ink of Jeremiah or Daniel. So he writes his apostles. His, he writes his revelation by drawing upon the Old Testament. And when he describes this, this river of living waters that comes from the throne of God, he's doing nothing more than echoing what Ezekiel saw. Remember that vision of Ezekiel? He goes up to, the, to this, this end-time temple, and there's a little trickle of water coming from underneath the temple, and it's just ankle deep. And then he begins to follow it, and what happens to it? It gets deeper. It's knee-high, it's thigh-high, it's neck-high, and now it's so high that he... He, he can swim in it. And where does it go? It goes all the way to the Dead Sea. And it resurrects the Dead Sea. In the Old Testament, the Dead Sea is called the Salt Sea. And it, we're told that it desalinizes it. Anyone, anyone floated in the, in the Dead Sea? Yeah. It's so thick you, can, you won't sink, right? There's so much salt there. Imagine a river that conquers the Dead Sea that desalinates it, that resurrects it. And the reason it does it is because it flows from the very throne of God. And so it carries vivifying, enlivening waters so that everything they touch is made alive. That's what John sees in the new creation. Because flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb is life. It's the life in which we already now participate. You once were dead in your trespasses and sins, and now you are alive in Christ Jesus. You once were like the Dead Sea, filled to the brim with the salt of death, and now the mercy of God flows onto you and cleanses you and enlivens you. That's a picture of what's going to happen in the new creation when we all are going to be like the priest of old. It says in Revelation we have the name of God on our foreheads. You know who had the name of God on his forehead in the Old Testament? The high priest. We're all going to be high priest in the New Jerusalem. The city that John describes is shaped like a cube. You know what was shaped like a cube in the Old Testament? The Holy of Holies. The reason there are streets of gold in the Old Testament is because the Holy of Holies was covered in gold from top to bottom. The holy city, the New Jerusalem, that comes down from heaven is like one vast Holy of Holies in which we dwell with God who is our temple, and we're all high priests who stand in his presence daily, receiving from him the mercy and love that he alone can give. That is the picture of the end for us. And it all begins in Genesis 1 and 2, and then continues to the making of the tabernacle and the temple and the incarnation of Jesus in his body. And it all is leading to a vision of what awaits us, the resurrection of the dead. When all of us will be raised with glorified bodies, with the name of God on our foreheads, and we will live in a creation in which there is no more death, no more uncleanness, no more shame, no more crying, no more tears. 
but instead there will be peace and wholeness and glory as we stand in the presence of the God who loved us enough to go to whatever lengths it took to make sure that we are his own. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have always desired to dwell among your people. Thank you for your creation. Thank you for, of old, giving us your tabernacle and your temple, which pointed forward to the body of your Son, into whom we have now been placed in baptism. Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for everyone who's here to hear your word. Be with us the rest of this day. Keep us safe and watch over us and bring us back tomorrow. We pray all this in your blessed and holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about attending Bible study, worship, or additional programs offered by the Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association, and for social media links, go to oceangrove.org.